press the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get daily updates from the front. From the journalists of The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Kristen Amiot. It's Tuesday, October 11. Australians should brace for more cost of living pain in 2023. That's according to bosses of some of the country's biggest energy retailers. Alinta Energy Chief Executive Jeff Dimery said power prices will soar as high as 35% next year as we transition to renewables and coal plants are shut down. They're the bikey busting laws designed to curb gang crime. The only problem is that in Victoria, they've never been used. That's compared with New South Wales and Queensland, where hundreds of bikies have been charged with crimes or issued warnings under beefed-up legislation in the last decade. We'll have more on that later in the episode. An inquiry into failings at Queensland's state-run DNA lab resumed in Brisbane yesterday, with this second module set to examine technical issues within the lab and within the Queensland Police Force. That's first up. The second module of an inquiry into Queensland's forensics lab is set to delve into the clash of culture and scientific best practice at the troubled facility. Lydia Lynch is a political reporter with the Australian's Queensland Bureau and she joins me now. Lydia, how is this second phase or module going to be different from what we heard in the first two weeks of the inquiry and who can we expect to hear from? So in the first part of the inquiry, it was really focused on that decision in 2018 to introduce the very high testing threshold for DNA. The next two weeks, we're going to be looking at other testing problems in the lab and how the culture of the lab impacted on staff's ability to raise concerns. On Tuesday, we're expected to hear from another scientist called Angelina Keller, and her focus at the lab has really been on testing of bones, so linking missing people to remains that are found. And in her statements to the inquiry, which we're going to hear about more on Tuesday, is how major changes in the lab have affected the ability for them to get good results from bone testing. So really that first two weeks focused just on the thresholds, but we're going to be hearing about other problems in the lab and just how widespread these issues are. The first witness in this new phase of the inquiry was a scientist named Alicia Quartermain, and she gave that real boots-on-the-ground account of the way those decisions by the lab's managers affected her work as well as her attempts to flag her concerns with higher-ups. What did she say about that? So she's described as a scientist on the coalface. So her job is once the results come through, she sits down and looks through the results to generate DNA profiles. She began growing concerned all the way back in 2019. She was looking at samples under a microscope, was seeing there was sperm present, but the results were coming back as DNA insufficient for further processing. So she decided to start processing some of those samples below the threshold and they were returning usable DNA profiles. Were there any consequences for her in deciding to defy that new threshold that had been introduced? We haven't heard evidence that she got pushback from management. There was nobody saying, you need to stop testing below the threshold or anything like that. It was more the fact she went to higher-ups saying we should review the threshold so that everybody can be testing like I am, and that wasn't acted upon. So she just sort of had her own process 
for testing, which wasn't uniformed across the lab. She did describe in her witness statement about scientists having a target on their back if they raise concerns, but she was referring more to cultural and administrative concerns in the lab. So things like flexible working hours so scientists could go and pick up their children. Um, We heard that the stationary cupboards are locked at the lab, so she felt there was a culture that scientists weren't being trusted. One group that she did receive some appreciation from was the police, and she told a particularly powerful story about a sexual assault that was solved thanks to her decision to test below that unprecedented testing threshold. Tell me about that. What happened in that case and how it represents the problem that is really central to this inquiry? So Alicia Quartermain gave evidence about a case where five samples had come back with DNA insufficient for further processing. She decided to rework those and at least two of the samples came back with usable profiles matching the offender 100 billion to one. And they were really crucial for the case because before that reworking was done by Alicia Quartermain, there was no DNA taken from her sexual assault kit. So when doctors had done internal swabs of her after her alleged rape, there was nothing in there that had matched the accused until she reworked these samples. And in that case, there was the complainant's DNA found on the accused penis. But how many other cases were there where that evidence wasn't there and the case would have completely relied on the swabs taken from the victim? We're really starting to see the quite chaotic inner workings of this DNA lab in Queensland. Where do we go from here? So for the rest of the week, we're going to hear from about half a dozen more scientists who worked at the lab. They're going to be talking more about cultural issues, how their concerns were addressed by management. And we're really hopefully going to get to the bottom of why these concerns weren't acted upon. Lydia Lynch is a political reporter with the Australian's Queensland Bureau. Coming up, why Victoria's bikey-busting laws are gathering dust. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The state government is having another go at stopping bikie gang members associating with each other. The New South Wales Parliament has passed some amended laws aimed at doing just that. There will be no let up from police or prosecutors. We will be giving them more resources. I want more convictions, not less. Police in Queensland and New South Wales have spent the last decade cracking down on crime perpetrated by motorcycle gangs. But in Victoria, the state's bikey-busting laws have never been deployed. Angelica Snowden is a reporter with The Australian and she joins me now. Angelica, you started looking into this following the shooting of Sam Abdul-Rahim in Melbourne in June. A former Mongol's bikey is fighting for life after he was shot multiple times while leaving a funeral at Faulkner. The gunman, who crashed into a fire hydrant and then carjacked a four-wheel drive with a woman and young boy inside, are tonight on the run. 
But let's start at the start. What are these so-called anti-consorting laws and what are they designed to do? So these anti-consorting laws essentially are designed to stop possible gang members from talking to prevent a crime from happening. So separate states in Australia have these anti-consorting laws. They include New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria and South Australia. New South Wales and Queensland have successfully used these laws over a period of years to prevent gang-related crime from happening. However, in Victoria, we've never been able to use the laws. What volume of charges and warnings have New South Wales and Queensland issued over the past 10 years? Both Queensland and New South Wales have issued thousands of warnings and they've charged hundreds of people with anti-consorting laws. Since 2012, when anti-consorting laws were first introduced under Barry O'Farrell's government in New South Wales, 102 individuals have been charged with consorting offences. 69 of them, police say, are identified as bikies. Since 2012 as well, 13,191 consorting warnings have been issued to nearly 8,000 individuals. These gang laws mean that, for instance, consorting moves into the 21st century, but consorting doesn't mean hanging out in a, in a pool hall. Consorting in this day and age can also involve uh, uh, contact by mobile phone, contact by email. So if you look at Queensland, anti-consorting legislation was updated and passed by Anastasia Palaszczuk's government in 2017. 2,000 warnings have been issued so far and 33 people have been charged with 42 offences under these laws. That's a significant difference to Victoria where no such charges have been laid. Is that because there's simply no bikey-related crime in Victoria or because the laws aren't fit for purpose or because police aren't applying them correctly? What's going on there? There's certainly, as I understand it, targeted shootings that absolutely occur in Victoria and in Melbourne. As I understand it, the threshold in Victoria to charge and warn people with anti-consorting laws is much higher than what it is in New South Wales and Queensland. So, for example, in New South Wales, if police would like to issue an official warning, a police officer can, in writing or orally, issue that warning. But in Victoria... An unlawful association notice has to be given by a senior police officer in writing and is subject to an application for an internal review. Again, the threshold is much higher than New South Wales. So the offence can only be triggered where the warned person consorts with convicted offenders on three or more occasions in a three-month period or six times in a 12-month period. That's Victoria. If you take New South Wales, however... A warned person can consort with at least two convicted offenders on two separate occasions. Is anything likely to change in future to make these anti-consorting laws in Victoria more applicable? So far, the Victorian Police Association has issued a list of priorities ahead of the state election in November. These types of legislative tools haven't been included on there so far. However, the state opposition, so the coalition in Victoria, have essentially told me that these 
laws make it really easy for bikies from across the country to consort and gather in this state, which I think could put a bit of pressure on the government potentially to look at changing the laws or reviewing them in the future. Angelica Snowden is a reporter with The Australian. And you can read all about that as well as the nation's best journalism at theaustralian.com.au. I'm Sarah Lamarquin, Editor-in-Chief of Stella and host of our podcast called Something to Talk About. Every weekend we publish a new episode where you'll hear compelling personalities, strong opinions and thought-provoking conversations. I wanted to be able to do it in my time when I was ready and speak my truth when I was ready. The topic of when do I become a mum, that is in my mind 24-7. Search for Something to Talk About wherever you listen to your podcasts.